0: So the bottom line here is this, like 10 years in, I feel like I still learn something new every day when it comes to athletic movement. And regardless of where you're at, I think you can continue to dive in and learn on this topic as well. Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we're gonna talk about six things that I'm focusing on in my programming and coaching. Now, this is something that I get pretty frequently at this point in my career. I get a lot of people that wanna know what's changed, how have I evolved, and I think it's a natural byproduct of the fact that I've been out there creating content for so long. So, I've been coaching 22 years now. I think I got my first pieces of content published and out there like one year into the game, which is kind of scary to think about. But essentially, I've been writing articles for like 21 years. I've been creating podcasts off and on for 10 or 12 years now. I've been creating videos for probably 14, 15 years now. There is just a ton of content out there from me espousing how i like to train how i like to coach so people are always curious like how has that changed how has that evolved and how am i continuing to try and get better so we're going to cover that today but before we dive into that i think it's really important to note that like my core overarching philosophy has not changed and there's three really big parts to this in fact i start every complete coach seminar now whether it was the one in slovenia the one in huntsville that i did earlier this year I like people to know that these core tenets, these core principles have not changed and they most likely will not change. There's a couple of them, so I'm gonna lead you with those. Number one, efficiency comes first. I want my clients and my athletes to move efficiently before we chase those fat loss, uh, muscle gain, strength gain, or athletic performance goals. I want to teach them to move more effectively first. So efficiency is number one. Second, We're all about building movement patterns. And I know this is cliche and everybody touts this now, but it's not so long ago where people weren't talking about, hey, I want to teach people to squat and change levels effectively. I want to teach them to lunge or hinge or do a quality push-up." So I'm a big believer that we teach our clients and our athletes how to move more efficiently, and we teach them how to move through these global movement patterns. And then last but not least, especially when it comes to your athlete's Training for sport is general in nature, at least what we do. I'm not a basketball skills coach like my guy Joey Burton. I don't teach football players how to run routes. I don't teach my baseball players how to throw a better slider. Like I'm here to give them the general tools so that they can go to their sport coach or their technical skills coach and hopefully get a better training result. So those are my big rocks. But with that being said, like that doesn't mean that we can't all continue to adapt and evolve. And and coming back to this complete coach seminar I did in Huntsville, one of the questions that Andy McCloy and I both fielded came from a young coach. And she said, you know, I'm really worried. I hear a lot of people talking about burnout. Like, how do I avoid burnout? And and Andy and I kind of had this same thought process of one of the biggest reasons you get complacent or you get burnout in this space is when you don't continue to challenge yourself. You don't continue to evolve. So if you're going to live the same training day for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, yeah, that's going to get pretty damn monotonous. You're going to get bored. You're going to get burnout. But if you're constantly finding ways to challenge yourself and to make yourself level up, I think you're going to be good. And you see this if you go back and you watch Michael Jordan in The Last Dance. You know, how many times does he say, that disrespected me. I felt disrespected, you know, or I found a way, right? That, Like, I think there's something to be taken away from this. He constantly found ways, even as the best player in basketball, still the best player in basketball for the record. But as the best player in basketball, he found ways to motivate and keep himself engaged and switched on night after night after night. And I think we as coaches and trainers need to be able to do that as well. So, You know, as we dive into this, I got no preconceived notions on how long this show is going to be. 30 minutes, an hour. We'll find out. But I do have one simple goal here. I want this to be of massive value to you. Now, maybe you listen to this and you're like, oh, I already do all that. Whatever. Like, great. And maybe you hear one or two things. You're like, oh, those are good ideas. I'm going to start adding those in. But here is what I want you to get out of this. I want you to have... A ton of value that you get from this, but I want you to think about these things. Think about where they might fit into your programming. Or if they don't work, think about why they wouldn't work and what might work better. Because I think that's what we don't have enough of these days. We don't have enough critical thinking in our world and it's constantly, oh, so-and-so does this, so I should do that. Or you know, this person told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Stop. Stop just blindly following others. Think about, hey, What makes sense for me? What can I continue to adapt and evolve in my own coaching, in my own programs to help my clients and athletes get better results? Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into these six things that I'm incorporating into my programming and coaching. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by ExerFly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the ExerFly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional, or they take forever to figure out. But luckily, if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the ExerFly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy, and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats. If you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the ExerFly. The really cool thing is ExerFly is used by numerous teams in the NFL, NBA, over 50% of the English Premier League and numerous Olympic developmental programs as well. Now as a small business owner, I normally think, hey, this is way outside of my budget, I can't afford it because we all know in a small business, every penny counts. But ExerFly has you covered there as well. They offer 36 month, interest-free financing so you can get started ASAP with your training and pay as you go. And when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee, two-year warranty, and free shipping, I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this. If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my ExerFly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's exerfly.com. All right, my friend, let's dive into the six things that I'm focusing on in my programming and coaching. Number one, let's talk about isometrics. And I think isometrics are one of these big hot button topics. Everybody's talking about it now. Some people are talking about overcoming ISOs, some are talking about yielding ISOs. Now, I think one thing that's really important to note here is that they're not one and the same. And I think this is where people are just blindly hearing, oh yeah, I use isometrics, but without thinking about why they're using them or the specific rationale you might choose one over the other. So if I want to give you kind of my origin story on this, obviously, you know, when you hear about people like Verkashansky using isometrics when you heard about uh the old db hammer if you've not looked him up go take a gander there you might lose a day or two of your life but talking about extreme isos christian thibodeau but i think what really brought me back into this world of isometrics was the work of keith Barr. and you know at this point in time i've got a lot of basketball players a lot of soccer players and especially in the basketball space achilles and then quad and patellar tendonopathies are a real thing and you dive in and you start looking at the research, you're like, wow, there is a lot of research out there that supports the use of isometric training to reduce or ameliorate some of the issues that you're seeing when it comes to tendinopathy. So obviously following Dr. Barr's work, I'm like, hey, this is something I've got to start incorporating because at this point in time, I had a handful of athletes that had dealt with these sorts of issues on, on for years. Years at a time. I mean, I had one female basketball player that had dealt with Achilles stuff for like six years and had dealt with patellar tendinopathy for eight years. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems egregious. I don't know how she made it through a season, let alone six or eight seasons consecutively dealing with that. So, you know, coming back to Dr. Barr's work, one of the things that he talks about is this balance between slow training and fast training. So another way to think about this are like your slow or your yielding isometrics. So these are the ones where you're maybe camped out in a position for an extended period of time. 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe upwards of 60 seconds. So these slow yielding isometrics are very protective in nature. So these are the things that I love to do for the apathy type people, right? Whether it's an Achilles, quad, patellar tendon, When they've got these sorts of overuse injuries, and that's a whole other topic we could dive into, but when they need these protective elements, they need these slower, long-duration ISOs, that's where we use our yielding isometrics. Now, on the flip side of that, we've got our fast, or our explosive, or our overcoming ISOs, and these are more performance-focused. So these are things that I'm using generally right before somebody goes to a preseason or a training camp where we're holding very, very quickly, one or two seconds, push, 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 relax. Push, 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 relax. So I think this is something that's important to note. I'm all for you listening to this and starting to use isometrics in your training. Just know, hey, what am I trying to get out of it? What is the use or what's the rationale here? So if you're doing those fast, explosive overcoming isos they're more performance focused and if you're doing these slower longer duration yielding isos they're going to be more protective in nature and this is something that we're doing a couple times a week you know for our lower extremity uh very basic seated uh, soleus strengthening on a seated calf raise machine i think i mentioned this on the show at some point in time but yeah i actually drove to beautiful frankton indiana shelled out 300 bucks and bought a seated calf raise for all our guys and gals and a basic standing uh, variation. So, I mean, you could do that just standing on the ground. Uh, we just flip our slant boards around, hold a weight and hold for again, 30, 45 seconds, up to a minute. And the great thing about these sorts of things is if somebody's in an acute phase and they're really dealing with some, some soreness and some achiness in those areas, you can do it multiple times per day. I believe Dr. Barr says, you know, two to three times a day, you need about six hours in between. But the great thing about these overcoming ISO, or excuse me, these yielding ISOs is that you get an almost immediate analgesic effect. So, you know, somebody's sore, stiff, achy, you can do those and you can generally get them to train fairly quickly right after that. So we got the calf work and we've got the quads. We got our leg extension ISOs with the monkey foot and then Spanish squats as well. So Lots of options there, uh, at least as far as the yielding work goes. When it comes to the overcoming stuff, it's really as as sexy as you want to make it. Make sure you play around with different positions. The old school O'Shea work will tell you you got 15 degrees above and below whatever joint angle you're at to see some return on benefit or uh, return on investment. But yeah, isometrics are definitely something I've been using more in the last year or two, and I think it's something you could probably benefit from as well that's number one isometrics number two isolation work and this i think started again probably a couple years ago i'm one of those people where i'm constantly like just loosely listening to what people are saying right i try not to give too much attention uh, t- to a lot of uh, people out there because there's a lot of noise if you've if you follow Derek hansen a lot he talks about signal versus noise i think there's a lot of noise out there I'm not sure there's a lot of signal, but this gentleman is a performance director. He's like a medical director in the NBA, and we are just talking about athletes, we are talking about injuries, and he said something that at the time kind of, you know, just kind of put a little splinter in my brain. And he said, you know, I really feel like very few injuries or, or people that are have dealt with a surgical intervention. So very few people that have had a surgery or have had a major injury are fully rehabbed. And it really made me pause and think about that because I think a lot of times we get somebody back on the court, right? Andrew Hauser and I talked about this. There's a difference between return to play and return to performance. And I think this is something we need to put a bigger emphasis on. We're so happy, so proud of ourselves just to get somebody back out there but are they truly at a hundred percent? And so Ben Bruno and I were actually having this discussion over Instagram because he works with a lot of basketball guys as well. And he's like, you know, I see a lot of people doing Achilles work or they're doing X, Y, Z work, and I just don't know what to think about it. And so I just kind of told him, look, like, look, sometimes you need these specific things, right? And sometimes it's just people following the crowd. So you got to understand if somebody has not fully rehabbed an injury or they haven't fully rehabbed coming off a surgery, isolation work may be one of the best places to start. And I think this was re kind of reaffirmed in this last off season because I, over the summer, have had a girl coming off an ACL tear. I had a guy that was coming off a quad tendon repair, a new guy. I had another athlete that was coming off a meniscus repair. So lots of knee stuff and none of them I felt like were fully rehabbed when they got to me. So you got to take a look. You got to look under the hood. And there's lots of ways you can do this. I mean, the easiest thing to look at is to simply look at muscle size. And all you need is a little mild tape to figure this out. Literally check their girth side to side. If somebody's got a knee issue, look at uh, their quad size. If somebody has an Achilles issue, look at their calf size. But you can start with low-level metrics and low-level KPIs like muscle size. You can look at force development. If you have force plates, you can look at rate of force development. There's lots of ways uh, or lots of KPIs that you can look at. It just depends on what you have access to. But isolation work is definitely something we've been doing more of. I think the monkey foot, again, is a great option. Uh, I get paid nothing to say that. It's just been a tool that we picked up this summer, and I love it. The guys and gals that I'm working with have loved it. So, we've just been throwing in some leg extensions, some leg curls at the end of sessions, especially if they're cleaning stuff up. Again, our seated calf rays, our standing calf rays. Another one that I found very, very helpful um, is blood flow restriction. And this is something Mike Reynolds and I talked about, but I love BFR training with the isolation work. So, you can pair, say, your your blood flow restriction with your isolated leg extensions, leg curls, that sort of thing. But one of the things that we've been doing is BFR and then putting them on like the spin bike for 15, 20 minutes at a time. And anecdotally, I'll tell you, I mean, some of these athletes have had prolonged issues. Like we're talking multiple, multiple years, and they're coming off in very short periods of time where we've got this really focused uh, focused and intent to improve their movement issues, reduce any isolated muscle weakness, probably not the best way to put it, but these like isolated muscle weakness deficiencies. And just like a KPI of, Hey, let's try and iron out side to side size differences in your legs. And anecdotally, these athletes are absolutely raving about where they're at. So, you know, I'm feeling like we're in a really good place with some of this stuff, but isolation work. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this coming from a movement-based guy. But I think there is a role, there is a time and a place for isolation work. And look, I'm just here to tell you, anecdotally, we've had some really, really good results uh, in the last year or so, incorporating more of this into our sessions. Number three, I feel like a lot of eyes going on, right? We got isometrics, we got isolation work. Our third eye is internal rotation. And I gotta give a shout out to my guy, Bill Hartman here. Because Bill is constantly pushing the envelope. And even though Bill and I don't always get to interact quite as much as I would like, because, you know, he's got the the clinic and I've got the training and, you know, there's a lot going on. He's constantly making me think. He's constantly making me evolve. But I want to pose a question to you, especially if you do like table tests with your clients and athletes. How many clients or athletes do you evaluate? that have limited internal rotation at either the hips, the shoulders, or potentially both. Because I feel like when we come back to it, right, and Eric Cressy actually asked me this on his podcast, like, are there any big, like, measurements or table tests that you like? And we kept coming back to, like, hip extension is huge. But when you look at hip extension, hip extension is part of that kind of three-headed monster That is hip extension, hip adduction, and hip internal rotation. We know all movements are triplanar in nature. So you can't say hip extension without also saying hip internal rotation. But that also brings us back to, okay, if we can identify that somebody needs more hip internal rotation, like how do we go about doing that? Because sometimes that's not like the first step in the process. So for me, I find you almost need this like three-pronged approach to get somebody to move the way that you want. The first one is addressing position, right? So somebody's got this massive like anterior orientation of their pelvis. Their pelvis is dumped forward. Maybe they show that they have hip IR, but really it's just because of the position of their pelvis. You know, they may or may not depending on other measures. But the bottom line is this. You got to get their pelvis back underneath them first to unlock true hip internal rotation versus just orientation. So step one, address position. Number two, now make sure they can shift their center of gravity back. And this is where you're talking about like your more external rotation-based measures. And I feel like uh, if ERs were 2020 and 2021, 2022 is all about the IRs. It's about getting internal rotation back. So you address position, you get the pelvis underneath them, you shift their center of gravity back, and then then you can add in this internal rotation. So people often ask me, okay, well, that's great. You know, if I need to recapture IR, how do I do that? How does that look like in a program? And so there's a sequence to this that I think might be valuable to you. So here's how I might do it if I'm working with a client or athlete. We know front foot elevated split squats are great for shifting somebody back right? It's great for shifting them back. It opens up the backside of the body. It allows them to change levels, reduces load on the front leg. Now it's not going to maximize IR, but it's the first step in the puzzle, right? Because you got to have ER to then create IR. So we're going to start with a front foot elevated split squat first. So maybe that first block, we use that to shift them back, start teaching them to change levels. Now, Once they've kind of mastered that, they found their heel contacts, that sort of thing. Now we take them into phase two. Second block, now we're gonna do maybe a split squat with a, a dorsiflexion element to it, right? So maybe we're cueing them to stay tall, find their front heel, but as they load that front heel, as they change levels, allow that knee to glide over their toe, all right? And this is one of those things where a lot of people struggle with this. There's a lot going on. If you're trying to keep a tall torso a good heel contact, and let the knee come over the toe, a lot of people are going to struggle with that. But if you can start to layer those pieces in now, hey, maybe month three, we're going to take that and now we're going to do something dynamic like a lunge, where you're going to take a step forward, you're going to find your heel contact, you're going to let the knee come over the toe, you're going to get that compression, then you're going to push and power out back to the starting position. Man, that's a nice little sequence there over three months. Plus, then you can start taking these ideas and these concepts into their R4, their reactive work, right? So you can do split squat jumps into and out of these positions, lunge stops. Again, I'm thinking more basketball related, but regardless, if you work with baseball, softball, volleyball, football, figure out how to take these concepts and apply them to your sport. But I think recapturing internal rotation and making sure our clients and athletes have adequate internal rotation is something that we've all known as super, super important. I just feel like now I've got a better understanding of how to get it out of them time and time and time again. So that's number three, recapturing and focusing on internal rotation. Number four, athletic movement. And if number three was a shout out to Bill Hartman, number four is a shout out to my guy, Lee Taft. Like 2012, the Elite Speed Seminar, I brought him and Nick Winkleman in because I realized, man, I don't know jack squat about really teaching athletes how to be fast, how to be explosive. So thanks, Lee, for all your amazing work and mentorship over the years. If you're not following Lee, make sure you do that. Such an amazing human and just a fantastic coach as well. And I think this is what's fun about this. We talked about not getting stagnant, not being complacent and, you know, following Lee and just getting more entrenched in sports over the years, I'm just constantly trying to refine my eyes for speed and agility training. So no two days are the same when you're in the gym. I'm constantly looking at my athletes and I'm asking, you know, are they finding the right angles? Are they getting good foot contacts? And we'll talk more about that later because I think that's really important too. You know, one of the coolest things that I found, especially here lately, as I've gotten better about watching movement and syncing and relaying that back to their injury history is, hey, are they using strategies to compensate or work around past injuries? And this is something I've seen time and time and time again, especially as I've gotten more locked in on this. I see, oh... Well, it's not that they don't know how to do that move. They're choosing not to do that move, or they're choosing not to use what I would consider to be a more optimal strategy because they're hiding an injury. They're trying to mask a certain asymmetry or mask some sort of deficiency in their movement. So this is why this stuff is so much fun for me. But you know, I think another reason I enjoy this so much is that there's just so much... To undo with our athletes. And and you know me, I love to be positive. Uh, I love to be optimistic. But so many of my athletes, myself included, learned how to move inefficiently. Like we learned from our basketball coach or from our football coach how to move. And they're just teaching how they were taught 20 years ago or how their coach taught them 40. You see where I'm going with this? It's crazy. We're not learning how to move from movement specialists. We're learning from sport coaches. And sometimes that's great and sometimes it's not. So, with so many of my basketball players, I'm having to like break down very fundamental movements like how to shuffle, how to plant and cut, how to hip turn, hell, how to close out, how to literally sprint and close out on somebody because they don't know how to do it in the most efficient and effective manner. And I think the thing that's fun for me in this instance is that. We're taking these athletes that may be dubbed slow, and now we're taking that knock away from them because now they're like, oh my gosh, faster than expected, quicker feet than expected, things like that that really make you feel like, hey, we're making a difference here. So the bottom line here is this, like 10 years in, I feel like I still learn something new every day when it comes to athletic movement. And regardless of where you're at, I think you can continue to dive in and learn on this topic as well. Okay, number five, rate of force development and you know over the years i have spent more than my fair share of time in the weight room developing general force development with my athletes and you know part of this is just a byproduct of my bias as a power lifter i just thought hey if you get everybody stronger if you have them squat bench and deadlift you're going to see improvements in their performance and you know sometimes that's the case sometimes that works. If you've got a young developing athlete that just needs general development, they ge- need general force production, or you've got these very like bouncy elastic creatures where they need some low end torque and some, some, again, general force development, it's going to work. But I think something it took me a while to figure out probably longer than it should have is that, you know, sports have constraints just because you can, take 10 seconds to finish a deadlift doesn't mean you have that same amount of time on the field, court, or pitch to produce force. So you have to learn to be fast. And, you know, I knew this was an issue in my programs, but I'll be honest, I don't feel like I had the best avenues to address it. So some of the things they will talk about um, in like the textbooks and the training manuals is like heavy eccentrics right? Or maybe like a heavy eccentric with a weight releaser. Okay, that's fine. Uh, some people would talk about like pure speed work in the weight room. And again, that's fine. But you know, when you're trying to be really fast, unless you have accommodating resistance in the form of like bands or chains or something like that, there's still a massive deceleration phase. So, you know, I was constantly trying to find a better tool a tool that would blend the R4 and the reactive portion of my workouts with my R5 resistance work. And I think for me, that's where the ExerFly came in. When Chris Chase and I got on that podcast last year, he and I have been kind of going back and forth a little bit anyways. But when he and I started talking about that, I was like, I think this is it. I think this is the tool that I need. Because the great thing about a flywheel, well, a couple things. But number one, you're untethered. A lot of athletes don't like being tethered to a barbell or something like that. It doesn't always feel natural to them. So it's more natural. It's rate focused. The more you put in, the more you get back out. So the harder you stand up, the harder that thing's jerking you back down. But the last piece for me is like that motorized tech, too. So if you're working really hard to stand up, you can overload that eccentric even more which is what we really want to expose our athletes to, right? It's very rare that an athlete gets injured in a concentric or overcoming muscle action. It's much more likely to happen when it yields or it yields at the wrong time. So the exerfly for us has been huge. Um, you know, I can't say enough good things about it, but at the end of the day, for me, adding in more rate dependent or rate focused work into our programs has made a really big impact. And again, the sample size is small because I only have a handful of athletes that have gone through it, but I mean, some of these guys that are reporting to Summer League this year, they just keep talking about what how good they feel, um, previous issues that they've had in the past don't feel like issues anymore. They don't feel limited in their movements. So I feel like if you work with athletes, hey, general force development is great, but make rate of force development a bigger focus, and I think you're going to get a huge Return on your investment. Last but not least, number six, foot contacts and forces. And one of the things that I have really picked up on in the last six to 12 months is that athletes have awful kinesthetic awareness when it comes to their feet. Or on the flip side of that, maybe they have great kinesthetic awareness, but they can't fix what they feel. So, like, I was working with an athlete today. Uh, young gal, high level soccer player. And she's like, you know, I just kind of know I'm always on the outside of my foot. She's like, I have a high arch. I'm like, well, let's fix that because I think that's part of what's driving some of your issues. So one of the big things that I've tried to emphasize, especially in the last six to 12 months is that athletes need to be able to feel all the various surfaces of their foot when they're training. And I've done a couple things that I think have been helpful and that will be impactful to you. Number one, I know it's kind of come and gone and come and gone, but I'm I'm coming back to the barefoot training, especially early off season, just to get my athletes focused on feeling all the surfaces of their feet again. And it kind of coincides with this general redevelopment. You know, we'll do a lot of sled dragging, backward sled dragging to find heels, lateral sled dragging to find arches. But we're going to do a lot of that early on. We're going to squat uh, barefoot so we can try and feel all of our foot surfaces. So starting with some of that low level stuff early on, I think is very, very valuable. And if you have not done this yourself, I would implore you to try it because I think you'll be shocked at how almost dumb your feet feel. Unless you spend an inordinate amount of time without shoes and just walking around barefoot, it feels weird. And it's very hard to control your foot, but you got to think your foot is your first interaction with the ground. So if you don't have a good foot contact and you can't set your foot the way that you want, you're losing force production or you're distributing forces ineffectively, like probably not great things are going to happen. So you got to work on that. Now, when we talk about finding all surfaces, the way I kind of think about it is I want to find heels. And if you want to come back to like the way Bill talks about the gait cycle and the different rocker positions early in an off season, I need heels. I need heels. I need a clean, early propulsive position to build from. From there, then we're going to get into our IRs. This is where I need to find my midfoot, right? Or that middle propulsive position. Some people would call it an ankle rocker. But the arch here is huge because a lot of times people want to try and transition Through this middle propulsive phase and they're still on the outside of their foot, right? Or they can't IR through like the foot, the tibia and the femur. So we got to find a way to find that clean middle propulsive position. And then at the end, we have to be able to feel our toes and push through our toes. So that's our late propulsive position. But I think with my athletes trying to get them to work through this gait cycle, Right, getting them to feel all these various contacts, like finding the heels, finding a midfoot and arch. If you can just give them those two things, I think a lot of times the late propulsive stuff you can tease out when you're doing medicine ball throws or you're doing sprints and acceleration type work. But for me, in the weight room, trying to help my athletes find their heels early in an off season and then find that arch and that midfoot, trying to find that IRD middle propulsive position. Hit it clean, feel that whole foot, and being able to push and power out of that is very, very powerful. So the foot is something that I'm constantly trying to learn more about. Uh, Again, it's one of those topics that I think has been very in vogue over the years, but I don't know if anybody has dove into it the way that Bill has. So definitely make sure you go check out some of his YouTube videos on the foot about the different uh, different pieces of the gait cycle because I think it'll be very helpful to you. So man that does it for today the six things that i am focusing on in my programming and on my coaching to recap very quickly number one isometrics overcoming yielding they're not one and the same use those yielding isos and as a protective measure to help deal with some of those tendinopathies and some of those overuse issues and use the overcoming isos when you're trying to get that athlete prepped and ready to go to camp you want them bouncy and fast and explosive, that's when you use those more, more performance or overcoming-based ISOs. Number two, isolation work. Come back to what that you know medical director told me, like most of these athletes aren't fully rehabbed. So hey, if that's the case, maybe some of that local isolative work to the specific areas or the potentially injured or, or atrophied areas around that joint need some extra tlc so isolation work hey man it may not be the only thing you have in your program but maybe it has a role number three internal rotation we talked a lot about er's over the years shifting back creating space on the backside. but now once somebody can er can they ir as well and i think a lot of times your clients your athletes it's it's a common finding they need more ir so figure out a way to give it to them, but through a very sequenced and organized progression. Because a lot of times it's not as easy as just go get IR. Sometimes you got to get a little ER to get a little IR. Number four, focusing on athletic movement. For me, man, there's just no shortage of issues to work on or to address, or there's no shortage of things that can be coached with your athletes when it comes to their athletic movements, So this is something I'm passionate about. I'm hope it's, hoping it's something you're passionate about as well because we can all help our athletes move more effectively in their given sport of choice. Number five, rate of force development. All four getting strong when it's necessary, but hey, at a certain point in time, getting stronger isn't gonna give you the biggest ROI. And in fact, I think a lot of times emphasizing rate over pure max strength or max force development is actually a more efficacious use of your time so make sure that rate of force development is a big piece of your training programs when you work with your athletes and then last but not least foot contacts and forces hey man the foot is that first interaction with the ground you want to be able to decelerate effectively accelerate effectively you know come into and out of cuts regardless of what your athletes or your clients wanna do in life or on a on a given sporting field, they gotta be able to feel their foot and they gotta be able to negotiate what's going on at their foot to be their best athletic self. So find ways to reinforce these good foot contacts, whether it's heel, whether it's midfoot, whether it's toes, figure out where they're at, figure out where they need a little bit of work and then put it into their training program so that ultimately, They interact with the ground better and they become more effective movers as a result. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. A little bit all over the place. Again, it's just kind of stuff that I'm thinking about, things that I'm trying to do in my own programming, in my own coaching. Uh, Most importantly, I just hope it's beneficial to you. Again, if you're doing all these things, great. Uh, But if nothing else, I hope it stimulates some thought and gets you to constantly challenge and qualify Things that you're doing in your programs and constantly getting you to ask yourself, Hey, yeah, I'm having good results now, but how can I continue to make this better? How can I continue to adapt and evolve and just ultimately to help my clients and athletes get better results? So, man, as always, thank you so much for your support. If you enjoyed this show, please do me one favor share it with a fellow athlete, another trainer, another coach, somebody that would benefit from what you heard here man we're always trying to make the show better i'm trying to make the industry a little bit better and i hope that sharing some of my experiences some of my wins and definitely some of my losses helps you become a better coach or clinician as well so again as always thank you so much for your support love and appreciate you and we'll be back next week with our next episode take care